whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. When Jesus saw him lying, knew he had been now a long time in that case, he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool. And while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole, took up his bed and walked, and on the same day was the Sabbath. Let's pray together. Father, we love you this morning. We're so thankful for this opportunity to be in this place. Lord, we do want to be mindful to thank you for, uh, Lord, our mothers and the women in our life that have loved and nurtured and supported and encouraged us, Lord. And uh, they certainly stand as an inspiration, uh, as, an, as a manifestation of your love, Lord, and we are so thankful for them. I pray this morning, though, that we'd not just come and have ceremony, but that we'd have church, Lord, that we'd not just come and and and, uh, and make a show of formality, but, Lord, that uh, there'd be a work of faith done in this place. And I pray that the sweet Holy Ghost, Lord, often uh, it's been said that the mother is the Holy Ghost to the home. Lord, I pray that, that the Holy Ghost, that the Holy Spirit would have liberty this morning to move and to work in this place, that He would reach hearts, that He would teach us, Lord, that He would stir us, that He would dislodge us from our places of apathy, Lord, that He would address directly the unbelief of our hearts, and Father, that you'd be glorified in all that takes place. Lord, I love you this morning, and I thank you for loving us. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. John chapter number 5 records for us one of the most astounding and dramatic and fascinating miracles that the Lord Jesus performed in his entire earthly ministry. We talked a little bit a week or two ago about the glorious things we can learn by reading through John, uh, the Gospel of John. You know, the Gospel of John is unique in that it's the only book of the Bible that is written to unbelievers. It is written to show lost men that Christ is the Son of God and the Savior of men. That's why often when we're witnessing to a person or when a person just gets saved, we'll give them a copy of the Gospel of John. Is because if a man or a woman reads the Gospel of John with an open heart, with an honest mind, they'll come away saying, just as John did, surely this man, he is the Son of God. They'll see Christ crucified on the cross of Calvary and like that Roman centurion say, truly this was the Son of God. And so you can walk through the book of John and just learn things about the Lord's ability to work in the life of a lost person. Now let me say to you this morning, if you're here and you've never been saved, you've been around Christianity, you've heard of it, you might be well acquainted with it, but your life does not have God in it. Can I tell you it can this morning? Uh, the Lord loves you. He's interested in you. He loves you as much as He loves the greatest preacher. He loves you as much as He loves the most dedicated missionary. He died for you just like He died uh, for uh, every other person in this world. And He's interested in you. He loves you. He has a plan for your life. And so when we read through the book of John, we learn some things. In John chapter number 1, we learn uh, that He's the Word made flesh, that He is the Messiah of God, that He is the one uh, that was coming to save humanity. In John chapter 2, we learn He can transform things. He changes that water into wine. In John chapter number 3, we learn that He regenerates things, that He gives us new life. Uh, you remember what He said to Nicodemus, except a man be born again, he shall not see the kingdom of God. didn't say except a man not be religious, except a man uh, be baptized, except a man join a church. He said, except a man be born again. Uh, so he, he brought it down to the level of what it really is. Have you been born again? Have you been saved by the grace of God? John chapter number four, you know what we learn? We learn that he loves everybody. Even this woman by the well in Samaria, who by all natural rights he should have hated and disdained, he loved her enough to reach her with the truth of the gospel. And then in John chapter six, we'll just jump past our text. In John chapter number six, you know what we learn? He's the bread of life. 
He breaks that bread and those fishes and feeds 5,000. Not only that, we learn that He calms the storms of life. Uh, if you have storms in your life, listen, if you're here lost and undone and your life is a tempest right now, your life is a hurricane, I'm not saying if you get saved you won't have problems. I'm saying if you get saved, you're going to have a God that will help you through those problems. He can calm those storms. And we could go on and on. John chapter 7, we learn He's the water of life. We can come and drink freely of His salvation. John chapter number 8, we learn He is the forgiver of those that have been... Uh, found out in sin that He pardons those that come to Him and seek mercy and grace. We find out in John chapter number 9, He opens the eyes of the blind. John chapter number 10, we learn that He is the door. He's the good shepherd. He's the door. He's the sheepfold. He's everything. You don't have Him, you don't have anything. John chapter 11, we learn that He gives new life. He calls Lazarus forth out of the grave. Uh, and so on and on we could go through the Gospel of John. But what do we learn in John chapter 5? In John chapter 5, we come upon a man who the Bible goes out of its way to tell us has been lying by this pool for 38 years. I want to preach to you on this thought this morning. 38 years broken. Here's what we learn from John chapter 5. We learn that he's the savior of lost causes. We learn that you can never be so lost that he can't find you. You can never be so broken that he can't heal you. Uh, you can never be so condemned that he can't pardon you. And when we come to John chapter 5, we find a living example of this truth. Uh, we see this man in his infirmity, in his brokenness, who for 38 years has laid beside this pool, hoping and waiting for some help to come along to him. You know people die and go to hell waiting on help to come? If they refuse the help that's been given, they'll die and go to hell waiting on help to come. And this man almost had that occur in his life. I want you to notice three simple thoughts this morning. Then I'll let you go and you can go and eat deviled eggs and, and uh, give people flowers and, and hug your mamas and take them to restaurants and do all those wonderful things. But first, I want you to notice three things from this passage. Look with me at verse 1. The Bible says, After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. And these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. You know, the first thing that occurs to me, here's this man. The Bible doesn't say he laid there for thirty-eight years. We can imagine and assume that a great portion of his life uh, dealing with this infirmity, living with this sickness, and him learning and knowing of this uncertain hope that might lay at this pool of Bethesda, that probably for years this man had laid there. And yet still he had laid in this same place and never gotten any better. Can I tell you, you're not going to get saved automatically. You're going to have to come to the Lord to be born again. Uh, your brokenness isn't just going to go away. We have this sort of storybook idea in our mind, and Hollywood has conditioned us to this, society has conditioned us to this, uh, that eventually something will just happen and things will get better. But you know there's people that live from the cradle to the grave, lost, and never come to the Lord, and they're never born again, they never get saved, their life has never changed, uh, they, they are born in sin, they die in that very same sin, and they die and go to hell. Their life is an unmitigated tragedy. And this man was dangerously, perilously close to being in this place. When I read this passage, the first thing that occurs to me is the things that had failed him. It was not for lack of desire that this man stayed sick. It wasn't that he didn't want to be better. And I find this often to be the case when you witness to people. If you ask anyone, do you want to go to heaven when you die? 
Just about universally, the answer will be yes. You might occasionally find some cantankerous atheist and oh, I don't believe in heaven or whatever it might be. Or you might find a religious person that says, well, my church is going to take me to heaven. But pretty universally, if you talk to people, they'll all say, yes, I want to know God. I want to go to heaven. I want to be a child of God. I want to know that my eternity is secure. This man wanted. In fact, I'd say this probably more than most folks. Most people that walk through that sheep market day by day probably never gave mind to the power and strength of the legs that carried them. But this man, more keenly than most people, knew how precious that was. He desired to be healed. He desired to be whole. And yet we find that year after year, everything that he looked to failed him to make him better. I want you to notice three things that failed him. You know, the Bible says in verse number 2 that all this was happening at Jerusalem. Now, if you're not familiar, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And Israel being the nation of God at this time in history, Jerusalem was the place where God's temple was. And it was the place of religious worship. It was the place where God met with His people. In fact, we could say this. At that time, and probably to some degree even today, Jerusalem was the most religious city in the entire world. Not only is this man in Jerusalem, but the Bible says... He's by the sheep market. Now, what does the sheep market mean? Most commentators would tell you that there was no what we would call a market, like a bazaar, a large open space market in this place. But the Bible does tell us in the Old Testament that when they built the temple, they had 12 gates in the temple, and one of these was called the sheep gate. And the reason it was called that is because the livestock that would be brought in to be sacrificed at the temple would be brought in at that gate. And it came to pass in the course of history that men began to set up markets in this place right by the sheep gate so they could sell sheep to those that were coming to offer a sacrifice. Now here's this man right by the sheep gate. His entire life, every day, is spent watching these sacrificial sheep being marched by. He's watching religious worshipers come and purchase these sheep. He's watching the priests come out and take custody of these sheep and walk them in. He is not only in, in the nation's capital, he's not only in the world's capital of religion, he is in the most religious place, in the most religious place, and still he lays there broken. Religious people all around him. He's sitting here in the, in the shadow of the temple. He's sitting here with all the manifestations of earthly worship around him. He's here with every bit of religion that a man could be with, and yet still he's broken, still he's undone, still he's not whole. I'd say, number one this morning, the reach of religion had failed him. Religion hadn't done anything for him. It hadn't, it hadn't cleansed him, it hadn't washed him, it hadn't given him his legs back, it hadn't given him a new life, it hadn't given him any hope. He laid here in the shadow of the temple, dying of this infirmity. And you know, if that's not a picture of America today, I don't know what is. Undoubtedly, we live in one of the most quote-unquote religious countries in the entire world. Uh, that's rapidly changing. We are rapidly secularizing in the day that we live in. But even still today, uh, there's more religious consciousness, if we can use that term in America, than there is in most places all across the world. And listen, here you sit today. You don't just sit in one of the most religious countries in the world. You sit in one of the re most religious portions of one of the most religious countries in the world. You're in what we would call the Bible Belt. And in fact, a lot of people would say if this is the Bible Belt, Tennessee is the buckle of the Bible Belt. You probably drove past a dozen churches before you ever hit our parking lot. But you know, all around us there are people dying in their sins, and dying and going to hell. It's not just exposure to religion religion that changes a man's life. You can have all the religion that you want. You can go to church. You can hear the preacher. You can be baptized. You can join a church. And if you want to do that, there's churches all over the city that'd be happy to have you as long as you pay your tithes. That's all they care about. But that won't save you and that won't change your life. 
And that won't do for you what needs to be done. The reach of religion. I mean, religious people just walked over top of this man's brokenness year after year after year. And that's all religion can do. All it can do is walk past your brokenness, look down and sneer at you, and, and, and notice your brokenness. The reach of religion had failed him. But then notice what it says in verse 3. This is a fascinating passage. The Bible says that in these, in these pools, lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. What an interesting phrase. John tells us what that means. It says, an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now this is a fascinating verse. I can't explain everything about it. But this is not just John's commentary. This is the words of the Holy Ghost. And, and the Bible, if it says that an angel came down and stirred the water, I'm to believe that an angel came down and stirred the water. But there's no precedent for that in the Old Testament. There's no place that God said He would do that. But apparently this is something that was taking place at this time. Something we could say, if, if this is not uh, you know, inappropriate or irreverent, say it was an extra-scriptural supernatural event. That's what it was. Wasn't something that God said, I'm going to do this, but evidently it was something God was doing. Wasn't something that they could look to and claim Bible on and say God has to do this, but evidently it was something that God was doing. And it was a supernatural thing that was taking place. So this water would be stirred. And whoever made it into the water first, we're getting ready to go to church camp. Man, some of them kids get healed in a moment. Second, we turn them loose on that swimming pool. They're just wide open running. And uh, the only problem is because of his brokenness, he couldn't get himself there. And so year after year, the water would be stirred, but he was never the first one in. Whoever the first one was in was healed, but this man never was. I would say it this way. The reach of religion had failed him. But number two, the stirring of the supernatural had failed him. Uh, there's a lot of stuff that's called religion, that's called supernatural today, that is nothing but charlatan, uh, carnival tricks, nothing more. There's a lot of stuff that's a figment of human imagination. There's a lot of things that is the manifestation of, uh, of mankind's sort of, of desires. And, 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 you know, you can gin a lot of stuff up emotionally. There's, those preachers make a good living by stirring people's emotions. And when we read this passage, here's what we find. This was not a false but a legitimate supernatural event taking place. But, you know, still he laid in his brokenness for all these years. Because though there was something supernatural happening in the lives of others, there was nothing supernatural happening in his life. You know, there's some people that would say, well, preacher, I'm just waiting for God to show himself to me. You know, he already has. Some people say, well, preacher, I'm just waiting for God to speak to me. Hey, he already has. God, who at sundry times and divers manners has spoken unto man, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son from heaven. In other words, God has spoken to you. You say, preacher, I'm just waiting for something to happen. Hey, 2,000 years ago on Calvary's Hill, something happened. Christ died for your sins, paid the price for your sins. But really all that's just a cop-out for people not wanting to face the reality of the decision they have before them. If you're waiting for some great, glorious, supernatural experience to happen to you before you're willing to believe in God, you're not coming to Him by faith, you're coming to Him by feeling. Faith is based on the Word of God. God said this is true and you say, I'm going to respond to that and believe that. I'm going to trust God above myself, above my experience, above my intuition. I'm going to believe God. That's what faith is. And so he was waiting for this stirring of the supernatural. I, I don't even say that as a cynic. I believe this probably did take place, but it didn't help him. Hey, uh, listen, uh, how sad it would have been for him to die and go to hell waiting for an angel to stir the water when a Savior standing right there beside him. 
And how many people die and go to hell waiting for some event to happen to them, some great religious experience to happen to them, all the while Jesus is standing there with arm outstretched to you saying, I love you, I've died for you, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. If you'll come to me, I'll save you. This man, all of the stirring of the supernatural did not Help him. And then verse 5 is interesting. The Bible says this, A certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. The impotent man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no man. The Lord Jesus looked at him and said, Wilt thou be made whole? And in verse number 6, and this is how he replied. The Bible says this, The impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. What a sad, tragic picture this is of this man trying to somehow drag his broken body down to this pool, maybe pleading with men as they walk by, would you help me? Would you please do something to get me into the water? I have to be the first one in. But moment after moment, year after year, month after month, week after week, you know what men did? They just merely stepped over top of him and took the first place in that pool. Here's what this man was trusting in. He was trusting not only in the reach of religion and the stirring of the supernatural, let me tell you another thing that failed him, and that was the mercy of man. He says, I have no man. And can I just tell you this? If you're looking for somebody to save you, there's only one that will and can. Hey, listen, he, he's, he's the Savior of the world, especially of them. He's the Savior of all men, especially of them that believe. He is a propitiation for our sins. He is our Savior. There's one God, one mediator between God and man. Not a bunch of them. There's one mediator between God and man. There's only one that can get you to God, and that's the man Christ Jesus. Only one. Uh, oftentimes people say, well, preacher, you just have lost faith in humanity. Number one, yes. Uh, number two, it's not even as much that. It's I know what is in man. You remember the Bible says that the Lord Jesus in John chapter 6 he wouldn't commit himself unto a group of people. And the Bible says because he knew what was in man. Uh, listen, if you're just trusting in the innate goodness of humanity, the, the, the milk of human kindness, I'm sorry to tell you, but it's already curdled. You'll not find any hope in humanity. You'll not find any. What you'll see when you look at the world is brokenness, selfishness. Uh, these people were really probably doing nothing any different than you would have done or I would have done. But isn't that a picture of the flaw and failure of humanity? Uh, you say, what's the difference, preacher? Well, here you've got the crowd, the spectators that are always putting themselves before the brokenness of this man. But then here stands the Savior who put this man's brokenness before himself when he went to the cross of Calvary. I'm telling you, what you're looking for, you'll find in Jesus. You say, well, preacher, I'm just, I, I believe mankind is inherently good. Then you ain't turned the TV on. Uh, you ain't paid attention. You've got your head stuck in the sand somewhere. The sooner you recognize that if you're trusting to the mercy of man, you're not going to find any, any hope there. But listen, uh, don't look to the mercy of man. Look to the mercy of God in the person of Christ Jesus. Uh, we find all these things had failed him. He lay there broken year after year after year and would have died in that condition had Jesus not come along. And I, I'm just, I want to be honest with you this morning. I, I'm telling you the truth this morning. You can live and die in your sins and nothing ever change if you choose to do so. All across, again, we're, we've been conditioned, we've been raised with the propagandized, brainwashed perspective of happily ever after. We think everything in our life is just going to end well because, well, it's just going to end well. Ain't you seen the movie, Preacher? It all works out in the end. Well, listen, that may be in the movie, but it's not real life. There are plenty of people that die in their sins, and they had every opportunity. They had the gospel preached to them. They sat in church services just like you're sitting in today. They heard the truth of God preached to them like you're hearing today. They had invitations given. They could have come to Christ, but they did not do it, and they lay there in their brokenness and died in their sins. This man is a picture of what could happen 
to any of us. But then everything changes one day. Now, this man, it's not that this man found the solution. It's that the solution found him. It's not that he found the secret sauce, you understand. It's not that he figured out the way. He didn't buy the latest, you know, self-help book and figure it out and unlock his uh, unmitigated potential within him and find the innate goodness of his soul. None of that happened to this man. He's just laying there in his brokenness, and then here comes Jesus walking by. Now, if that's not a picture of how you got saved, if you're saved, that's how you got saved. You're just laying there in your brokenness. You couldn't change yourself. couldn't help yourself. couldn't do anything for yourself. All your religion was a stench in the, in the nostrils of God. All of your righteousness was but as filthy rags before Him. None of that interested God. You were hopeless. You were helpless. But then Jesus came by and did for you what you could not do for yourself. And that's what happened to this man's life. I, I, we notice first off the things that failed him. But now I want you to look with me at the one that found him. Everything changed when somebody found him. And that person was the Lord Jesus. There are three parts to him finding him. Notice verse number 6 with me. The Bible says, When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time, in that case he saith unto him, Wilt thou be made whole? Three things happened here. Notice number one, when Jesus found him, he saw him. The Bible says, When Jesus saw him lie. Now, I don't know about you, but, uh, you know, very often, if, if there's something that you just leave in your house, and, and, and you know, I remember when we moved into our house, we still got boxes. I don't know, honey, it's been seven, eight years. We still got boxes we ain't unpacked. And my kids will unpack them one day. I, I'm confident of that. But And and you know how that happens, right? You, you take something in, you set it down, you say, all right, we're going to get to that later. And for about a week or so, it bugs you. Well, I need to get that. And then, like, a month goes by and you don't even notice it. And then one day you look and you say, there's that box. I need to get that and unpack that. Then a year down the road, it's just part of the wall now. It don't even exist to you anymore. I mean, you walk by it and it's like it's, if you're sleepwalking, you'd step around it. It's just become a part. You know what's happened? It's become part of the furniture, right? Well, here's this man who for 38 years in his brokenness and however many years he's laid by this pool, you know what happened? He became part of the furniture. People would walk by him, they'd step over him, not even notice they had done it. He was just another broken person lying in these porches beside this pool. But not to Jesus he wasn't. Jesus saw him there. When no one else saw him, when no one else noticed him, when no one else cared, Jesus saw him. Can I tell you, listen, in a world that sees you as just furniture, you're just another broken individual floating your way down the, the, the stinking river of life and time. Can I tell you that you have the attention of God? He sees you. He notices you. He knows your name. He knows your heart, your cares, your worries. And it could be that no one cares about you, but the Lord does care about you. He sees you. I've often been astounded, and I'm not going to just rip on you know the public school system. Maybe I will, but the... It's always been astounding to me that when you look at the public school system, you know, they, they spend all this money, I mean, tons of money on guidance counselors and, and, and people to, to build self-esteem in these kids. And you know, part of the reason for that is because in an institution like that, everybody's treated as a number and nothing more. They tear down the individuality of those children, and so then they have to do something to re-infuse it back into their life. So it's things like this, you know, student number 674569, please report to the guidance counselor's office. And then they go in and dutifully, and they tell them how individual and how beautiful and how amazing and how special that they are. And it's student 675489, go back to your class, you know. 
And they're trying to do something to infuse some sense of meaning into their life. You know, part of the reason we have to do that as a society is we've robbed people of the innate sense of meaning that's given by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that God, He didn't just die for the world. He died for the individual in the world. Uh, and listen, the world may treat you as just another number, just another file, just another, uh, just another uh, tally mark on its roster. But you know God knows you. He sees you. He loves you. He cares about you. The Bible says He saw him lying. You may say, preacher, nobody knows what I go through. God knows. Not only did He see him, but I love what it says. It says He knew that He had been now a long time in that case. Not only did He see him, but He knew him. He knew what he had been through. He knew every moment of pain. And you would imagine this man in his infirmity, we don't know everything about his infirmity, but we do know it prohibited him from walking. We know it was something that afflicted his legs. And you imagine the pain of lying out on the bricks of that porch just day after day, year after year. Imagine the agony of that. Imagine the, imagine the agony of soul and spirit as he waited for, for uh, 11 months and, and 30 days for that water to be stirred. And then it was stirred only to watch someone else Step down inside. What a crushing, defeating experience that must have been. The average person walking by would never imagine the torment that this man lived in. The Bible says when Jesus looked upon him, he knew him. He knew that he had been a long time now in that case. There was never a moment of pain, of disappointment, of heartache that had escaped the attention of the Savior. One of the things that has become very unhealthy in our society today is we have taken the concept of victimhood and made it a shield behind which we can stand. People when they have bad experiences in life, and, and that happens, I'm not diminishing that, I'm not minimizing it, but very often then, they'll take that shield, they'll build a wall, and they'll say to everybody that seeks some sort of, of voice in their life, they'll say things like this, well, you don't know what it's like. Well, you've not been through what I've been through. Well, if you'd gone through it, then you'd understand too. Can I tell you, that may work with the world at large, it may work with your family, but it does not work with God. Do you know why that is? Because He does know. He does know. He knows everything you've been through and He still says that salvation is the answer. Uh, this is not an ignorant statement of, of, of naivete on God's part. The Bible says He was touched in all points like as we are. Uh, he was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. He knows what you've been through. He knows your pain, your heartache, your suffering, and your sorrow. And still He says, I can heal you. I can change you. I can give you peace. I can change your life. I can give you new life in me. The Bible says Jesus knew him. But now not only that, the Bible says this, he saith unto him. So he saw him, he knew him, and then here's what he did. He spoke to him. The very first interaction that this man had with the Lord Jesus was not the hands of the Lord reaching out and healing him, but it was the voice of the Lord reaching out and speaking to him. Can I tell you, your first interaction with God is not that great, glorious, supernatural event that you're hoping and waiting to happen. The first interaction you're going to have with God is when he reaches out to you with his word and speaks to you. He spoke to him. That's how God begins our relationship with him. He speaks to us through the word of God. He speaks to us through the gospel. And so you say, preacher, I, I was hoping something would happen today. It is happening right now. Right now it is happening. The word of God is being preached to you right now. God is, and I'm not saying I'm God, I'm not. But in as much as the word of God is the word of God, God is speaking to you. He spoke to him. So I see the things that failed him. I see the one that found him. But then I want you to notice verse 6. There's a question that ends this verse. The Lord Jesus asked him this question, Wilt thou be made whole? That's really what it boils down to. So there's three things here. There's the, the things that failed him. The reach of religion, the stirring of the supernatural, the mercy of man. There's the one that found him. Jesus saw him and knew him and spoke to him. But then notice this. There's the decision that faced him. 
All was not done yet. And in fact, the Lord Jesus would have walked away, never having healed this man, if this man had not wanted to be healed. It was possible, think of this, it was possible for this man to come face to face with Jesus and still die in his sins and still die in his brokenness. There's people all the time that come face to face, not physically, not with the visible eye, but they come face to face with the gospel. The gospel, the truth that Christ died for your sins, He was buried and He rose again the third day, and He's alive and He's able to save you. There's people that come face to face with that truth every day and turn around and walk away and die in their sin. You know why? They made a choice. There was a decision that was put before Him. Notice three things here. Notice number one, what He must decide. Wilt thou be mad? Do you really want to be healed? Do you want to be changed? God is not going to trample upon your free will and choice. You have a choice whether to be saved or not. God's not going to force you to believe on Him. God's not going to force you to accept Him. God has a desire that we love Him in earnest, in sincerity. And God's not going to force you. He wouldn't create you with free will and then trample upon that free will. He gave you a choice. But understand, He gave you a choice. You now have a decision to be made. I'll tell you, there's two reasons why people die in their sins and go to hell. Two and two only. One is because they've never heard the gospel. The Bible says there's none other name given among men under heaven whereby you must be saved in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, That's the only way to be saved is to come to Him. So men die and go to hell because they have never heard the gospel. The second reason is this, because they want to. There's never been a single person that wanted to go to heaven and was willing to come on God's terms that God turned away. Christ said, hey, come unto me all you that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest. He didn't say come unto me some of you. He didn't say come unto me those that I have chosen aforetime. He said, come unto me all ye that labor and are heavy laden and I'll give you rest. So men die and go to hell for two reasons. Now one of those reasons has been negated in your life this morning because you've heard the gospel. So if you die and go to hell, it won't be because you've not heard the gospel. But there is a second reason you could if you just turn him away. Now I can't make you, and I'm going to be frank with you, if I could, I'd try. But I can't, and I understand that. I could walk you down an aisle, I could force you to sign a little green card, I could whatever, and that wouldn't mean anything in the eyes of God. You have to choose whether you want to be saved or not. But understand, you will choose. This man was making a choice. Now some would say, well, preacher, what if he just didn't want to make a decision? Then he would have been making a decision. This was the moment. Today was the day of salvation for this man. And he had a choice to be made. What must he decide? Wilt thou be made whole? Do you want to be saved? If you don't want to, God won't make you. He won't force you. But if you want to, then you're going to have to make your mind up to get saved. I'll tell you the day I got saved, can I tell you? It was the day I decided to. Now, that messes up a lot of people's theology. A lot lot of people like to have the idea there's got to be some great, grand, glorious, supernatural event take place, some sweeping wind sweep through, somebody come along and stir the waters. That's not how it happened when I got saved. I got saved as a 10-year-old boy. The Holy Ghost made real in my heart that I was lost, and I said, I'm not going to die in that condition. I'm not going, I don't have to. I'm going to believe on the Lord. I got saved the day I decided to get saved. And listen, you won't get saved until you decide to. You can hear me preach a thousand messages. You can hear other preachers far better than me preach a million messages. Uh, you can have a praying mama that loves you and prays for you. You can have a grandmama that loves you and prays for you. You can have a spouse that loves you and prays for you. And none of that will get you saved until you decide you're going to get saved. Can I tell you, if you make your mind up that you're going to get saved, nothing can stop you from it either. Uh, the things that could have stopped you from it, Christ dealt with on Calvary. And so he must decide. Notice number two, what he must desert. Verse number 7, the impotent man answered him, Sir, I have no man when the water is troubled. Put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steppeth down before me. This is an amazing answer to the wrong question. 
The Lord did not ask him, why haven't you gotten in the pool? He asked him, wilt thou be made whole? And here's how he answered in his religious mind. He said, well, I'd love to, but the problem is, I mean, the water only gets stirred once, and then I try to get down, and there's all these people, and they push me aside, and they get in front of me. I would imagine, I don't know, I'd imagine the Lord just kind of looked at him for a minute. I didn't ask you that. I didn't ask you what has prevented you before. I asked you if you will right now. Oh, preacher, one time I was hurt at church. That's not what I asked you. I asked you, wilt thou be made whole? Preacher, one time I knew this guy, and he said he was a preacher, and he turned out to be this and that. He's flander. He was an embezzler. He was this. I didn't ask you that. I asked you, wilt thou be made whole? Preacher, you don't understand. I grew up in a strict home, and the things that I went, I didn't ask you that. I asked you, wilt thou be made whole? Are you going to make your mind up or not? The Lord looks at him, and he says, do you want to be you want to be whole? And he says, well, I can't because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this, because of this. And the Lord says, rise, take up thy bed and walk. He said, I'm done with all that. I'm asking you if you want to be made whole. Here's some things he had to desert. All those former hopes, all those former hurts, he had to give up on them. He had to realize none of those things were going to save him. He had to realize none of those things that had happened to him were what mattered in this present moment. The only thing that mattered was where he stood with God and where he wanted to stand with God. It's the only thing that mattered. A lot of people die in their sins. They're hung up on the things that they've experienced in their past. Sometimes it's good things that they've done that they say, well, surely God will accept this. Surely God will be interested in this. But the Bible's already spoken to that. By grace are you saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. God's already dealt with this thing of works, all right? If it be of works, it is no more of grace. If it be of grace, it is no more of works. God has settled this discussion about whether works get us to heaven. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So you might as well go ahead and just file that stuff away and forget believing that's going to get you to heaven. It doesn't. God's not interested in that. And you say, but preacher, doesn't God want us to serve Him? Sure, after you get born again, God's very, very interested in you serving Him. We'll see how interested you are after you get born again. But yes, God is very interested in you serving Him after you get born again. But it's not the currency of, of, of grace and of salvation. And then some people, they're hung up on the hurts that they've experienced in life. Preacher, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what they did to me. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know what I've experienced. No, but I do know this. You have a choice to make about where you're going to spend eternity irrespective of what's happened to you, of what you've done good, of what you've done bad, you're going to have to make a choice about that. Now, it's your choice to make, and no one can make it for you. But you will make a decision. So make the right one. Notice what he must decide and what he must desert. And then notice verse 8. Jesus saith unto him, Rise, take up thy bed and walk. And immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And on the same day was the Sabbath. So we see what he must decide and what he must desert. Notice what he must do. He must respond in obedience to the message that was given to him. Uh, Now, I understand that the message, rise, take up thy bed and walk, is not synonymous with the gospel. Uh, But you see, the brokenness that God's healing in your life and mine is not a physical brokenness, it's a spiritual brokenness. And so there's a spiritual remedy, and that remedy is the truth of the gospel. I love how Paul says it in the book of Acts. He says, when he's talking to King Agrippa about how he got born again, he says this, Wherefore, O king, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Uh, There's a lot of discussion made about this idea of obedience when it comes to salvation. But can I tell you, hey, this is the commandment that you believe on the Son of God. You know what God expects out of your life? First and foremost is to believe on Jesus Christ. That's what God desires before He desires anything else. And so what does this man do? He responds in faith. 
He obeys the command that is given to him. And the command given to him was to rise, take up thy bed and walk. But the commandment given to you and to me is to believe on the name of the Son of God. That's the commandment that's given. So here's what has to happen. You have to decide that you're done with this life of brokenness. That doesn't mean you won't have problems. But it does mean that there will be a wholeness in your life that was not there before. Make your decision. I want Christ. Number two, recognize that none of those other things can get you to heaven. And number three, come to Christ and let Him do for you what you cannot do for yourself. Come to Him acknowledging your helplessness. Lord, I'm a sinner. I can't save myself. But I'm asking You to forgive me and save me and trusting in Him. 38 years is a long time. Eternity's a lot longer. He's waiting for you today. Oh, preacher, I'm waiting for that water to be stirred. Why don't you just go ahead and come to Jesus? It's a stirring thing to get born again. I promise you that. You come to Him, you'll have a lot of experiences. You join a Baptist church, you'll have a lot of experience. Come to Him. He's waiting for you. What a sad thing it would be to die and go to hell while the hope and promise and way to heaven is standing right beside you. Meanwhile, you're just waiting on something else to come along. Don't die in that condition. Let's bow together this morning as a musician comes to play. I want us to have every head bowed and every eye closed. If you do that, it'd, 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 it'd please me. It'd, it would encourage me. I want to ask this question this morning. Have you made the decision to come to Christ? Can you say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I, I know that I'm saved. I have no question in my heart and mind. I know that I'm born again. Can you say that? Or would you have to admit that if you died right now, you really don't know where you'd go? Uh, maybe you'd say, well, preacher, I've been to church. I've been around these things. But you cannot say with certainty that heaven's your home. You have no reason to believe that you go to heaven when you die. And you'd say, preacher, I want you to pray for me. God dealt with me this morning. I've been putting this decision off a long time. But I know I've got to make my mind up about Jesus Christ. And I want to do that this morning. Please pray for me. Would you slip your hand up? Nobody's looking around but me. And I, I won't embarrass you. I won't call your name or anything like that. I see that hand. Who else is there? Say, that's me. I see that hand. Who else is there? Say, that's me. That's me. I see those hands. You can put them down now. I'm not going to embarrass you. I told you I want and I won't. I'll honor and respect your privacy. But can I tell you this? Nothing's going to change until you'll come to Him. That's the only thing that's going to change it. You can, and I'm glad you did. I'm pleased that you did. Acknowledging that you're lost, you can raise your hand, and that's wonderful. That's a good first step. That's not what saves a person. It's coming to Christ, coming to Him. I can't make you get saved, and I wouldn't if I could. But we can take a Bible and show you what the, what the Word of God says about it. I'm not asking you to take my word. All right, I'm at, I, we'll show you from the Bible what it means to be saved and how you can be saved. But now that's a decision you're going to have to make. You can leave out of here lost. I can't stop you. No one else can. But if you make your mind up to come to Christ, then He'll receive you today. Father, bless this invitation. May it magnify the Lord Jesus. I ask it in His name.